people. Good morning. How are we doing? All right? Yeah? Good, good. Um, how are you getting on with the Bible reading? Are you still hanging in there? Yeah? Oh, fantastic. So we hit some, we hit some more kind of heavy going stuff this week, didn't we? We hit some laws <laughs> and some stuff about priestly garments and all kinds of blood splattering. And So if you're hanging in there, it's just getting exciting. So fantastic. Keep, keep going. Keep going. Um, we're going we're gonna to read today from Exodus chapter 20. We're going to read uh, Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 to 17. So, if you've got your Bible with you. If you haven't got one and you want one, there are Bibles just behind the green screens over to your left, over there at the back. So do feel free to grab one. Uh, Here we go. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations." of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. Neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servants, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbour, you shall not cover your neighbour's house, you shall not cover your neighbour's wife or his male or female servants, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbour. Great. Um. I want to show us a quick video clip. Is that okay? It's literally about just about a minute long. It's from a movie, which I, I'm going to rate up there as one of my all-time favourites. Actually, that's a big statement, isn't it? Uh, but I have poor taste in movies, so I'm so I'm told. My other favourite movie is Gladiator. Anybody? Watch Glad- yeah, oh, come on. There's an epic, epic soundtrack, right? Fantastic movie. Um, but um, other than that, all the other films I like, people kind of look at me as if I'm weird. Who likes Star Trek? Anyone? Oh, come on. Yeah, salvation is in this place. Fantastic. <laughs> there is hope. Uh, great, yeah, okay. But, um, this one is none of those. This one is uh, a Disney Pixar movie called Inside Out. Who's seen that? 
Anyone? Yeah, a few of you. Great. So um, just before I show you the clip, I just want to tell you a little bit about what's going on. The, the idea of the film is that um, all the human beings in the film have this little control or command center in their heads, okay, with a little viewing screen and all these buttons that they, they can push to make the human do things. And, and in the command center are a number of characters called joy, sadness, anger, um, Disgust, yeah, disgust. Um, there's, there's a number of them. They're all basically like emotions that humans would experience. And these emotions, these characters, they control the human being. And when they see stuff happen, they, they jump in and start responding to what's going on. And this is just a little clip. I just want to show you from that. So hopefully that's going to come up. This is Riley, okay? All right, open. Hmm, this looks new. Think it's safe? What is it? Uh, okay, caution. There is a dangerous smell, people. Hold on, what is that? This is disgust. She basically keeps Riley from being poisoned, physically and socially. That is not brightly colored or shaped like a dinosaur. Hold on, guys. It's broccoli! Yeah! Well, I just saved our lives. Ooh. Yeah, you're welcome. Riley, if you don't eat your dinner, you're not gonna get any dessert. Wait, did he just say we couldn't have dessert? That's anger. He cares very deeply about things being fair. So that's how you wanna play it, old man? No dessert? Oh, sure. We'll eat our dinner right after you eat this! Ah! Riley, ah! here comes an airplane. Ah! Oh. Airplane. We got an airplane, everybody. Oh. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, so I want you to turn to the person next to you, and you've got 30 seconds each. This week, we're taking a brief pause from the share with the person next to you what you read in the Bible this week, okay? Just in case you think that lets you off the hook and you can stop reading, we're going to bring that question back next week. So, you know, don't stop reading. Uh, but this week, I would love you to turn to the person next to you. And are you a head, heart, or body kind of person, okay? When you're in a situation and you respond to something, are you the person that instinctively, when something happens, you think with your head and you're like, right, logically, this needs to happen now, okay? Or are you the kind of person that's a heart person? So when something happens, you're instantly driven by your emotion. That made me feel so mad. Or, oh, I love of that kind of how do, are you one of those people are you a body kind of person you kind of the thoughts and the feelings they're gone you just instant response maybe you kind of want to grab someone and hug them or you want to just knock them for six <laughs> whatever okay all right are you a head heart body kind of person you've got 30 seconds turn to the person next to you and share with them that Okay, you've got 10 seconds. Five, four, three, two, one. Okay, draw your focus back this way. That would be great. Um, we will get back 
to our video clip and to our question by the end of our time this morning. But um, before we go back there, um, I believe that how we read the scriptures, how we read the Bible, it, it affects how we live the rest of our lives. How we read it and understand it shapes and affects how we engage with the rest of the world around us and how we engage with people and all the things that we do. Um, and, and I just want to make this statement before we go any further. If you read the Bible in a way that when you walk away from it, you feel crushed or depressed or oppressed, uh, I think you're probably reading it wrong. Okay, I just want to put that out there. I think you're probably reading it wrong. And I want to talk about this right now because we've just hit a whole load of chapters about law. And it's really easy, isn't it, when we read these chapters about law that we suddenly go, whoa, like what is going on here? Like, ah, oh, or, or you look at it and go, I am really screwing up. Hands up, who's murdered someone this week? No, I'm joking, I'm joking. Um, but, but, but we do, we, we can get really kind of caught up in some of those things and it feels more oppressive and it feels life-giving sometimes when we read the Bible. And if that is the case for you, then I want to say that we're reading it wrong. You see, the commandments and the laws and the whole of the scripture, they're not a new form of slavery. Okay, God sets his people free. He doesn't then put them back into slavery. Okay. Jesus says uh, in, uh, sorry, not Jesus, sorry, it's said about Jesus in Galatians 5 verse 1, that it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And at this point, I wanted to get you all singing that old song. Do you remember? No longer to be subject to a yoke of slavery. Do, 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 do. And we're rejoicing. No, come on. Right, we're not bringing that one back. <laughs> that was a little test. No. Um, so, uh, yeah, for freedom that Christ has set us free. For freedom. You know, the Bible opens with a God who speaks and there is life. There's order and beauty brought out of chaos. And you know how the Bible ends? It ends with the same God saying, no more tears, no more sadness, no more suffering, no more pain. And that God comes and makes his dwelling with human beings. It's Eden again at the end, but this time it's become bigger and it's a city. And they're not just two people, there are countless numbers of people. You see, the Bible starts and ends with a God of hope. And I think sometimes we forget that when we're reading it. And we read through and we get to some of these things and it's like we forget that that's who he is at the beginning and that's who he is at the end. But somehow he's had some sort of personality transplant along the way and he gets a little bit lost and screwed up and it all becomes a bit, oh, what is going on with God? And don't worry, Jesus is coming soon, we'll get there and bang and we get to the end and it's all okay. But that's not true, that's not the Bible. God is the same yesterday, today and forever and forever. He does not change. So I want to kind of look at two things uh, looking at the Ten Commandments. My first thing is to look at how are we reading it wrong? Like if we read it and it ends up kind of making us feel like slaves or kind of oppressed or depressed, if we read it like that, we're reading it wrong. How are we reading it wrong? And, And then the second thing I want to talk about then is where do we start? Like, what is the right starting place? And how do we read this right? Is that okay? That's where we're going today. So, first up then, um, Jesus did say this. He said, all the law and all the prophets can be summed up or hang on these two things. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor. Basically, what he's saying is 
everything in the Old Testament, everything, all the law, all the prophets, they can be summed up with this. Love God and love your neighbor. And, and as you look at the Ten Commandments, you see those two things, right? The first half of the Ten Commandments, they're all about how we love God. Don't have any other gods before me. Like, Don't cheat on me. Don't go behind my back. Me first. Let's be committed to one another. And then the second half is like, how do we love our neighbor? How do we get this right? How do we treat other people? And all of it is summed up in this. I actually would go further and say that I believe the whole thing, the whole thing is actually about God. It's actually about God. And the reason for that is this. You see, the first half is all about God's image. Okay, It's about who he is. It's about no images before him. He is first. Who he is, his image. It's about protecting that, honoring that, being reverent towards that, loving God, who he is. The second half is also about the image of God. You see, because back in Genesis, God made them male and female in his image. In his image. In his image. So how you treat another human being Actually, you're treating the image of God like that. That's what you're doing. In ancient times, kings couldn't often get around their whole kingdom regularly because they didn't have planes and helicopters and cars to take them around. Okay, That didn't happen. And so what they would do is they maybe once in their lifetime would often visit the outskirts of their kingdom. But the rest of the time, they would have a statue, an image of them set up in all the different outskirts of their kingdom. Now, if you come along and you were to stick some chewing gum in the statue of Donald Trump's eye, or you were to graffiti him, or do you chop off his nose or something like that, what happened to you was exactly what you would get, the same punishment, the same judgment and treatment as if you had done that to the king himself. Okay, as if you'd done that to themselves, because that was their image. It literally was the representation of who they were in that place. And how you treat that image is just like treating that God, that king, that way. And so how we treat one another is actually how we treat God. We, ca- we cannot come here and lift our hands and sing worship songs, but then walk out the door and gossip about one another or, or mistreat our neighbor or fail to love somebody properly. Because whatever you do to another human being, Christian or not, you, you do to the image of God. It's all about God's image. This whole thing is about God's image. Um, second thing then... So it's all about him. But if we zoom out and look at the context of the whole thing, we see something amazing. This is the overarching story of Exodus and where the Ten Commandments appear. It goes like this. People are in Egypt. God comes to them. He meets them. He leads them out of Egypt and he brings them to Mount Sinai, to the holy mountain of the Lord. The cloud comes down over the mountain and, and the commandments are given. And then God and his people move on from that place and they set up the tabernacle, the dwelling place where God meets with his people. That's the overarching narrative of Exodus. Now, what's fascinating about that is that that story is also the very same story of something else. It's the story of a Jewish wedding. You you see, the bridegroom, um, he goes to the bride and leads the bride out to the holy place where they stand underneath the hoopah, okay, the covering. 
And underneath the hoopah, underneath the covering, they exchange their vows, their covenant with one another, their marriage contract. And then from that place, they move forward and they build a home together, a dwelling together. You see how the story is the same? The cloud is the hoopah. The, the commandments are the, are the covenant, the contract of love between these two people. And so actually what's going on there is that God is marrying his people. He is faithfully committed to this one that he loves, to his beautiful bride, which is how the Old Testament sometimes speaks of Israel and the New Testament speaks of the church, the bride of Christ. God is committed to them. Uh, in ancient times, if a king and another king made a treaty with each other, they would get tablets of stone and they would write out the agreement between the two uh, nations on two separate tablets. Now spot this. If you look at when the commandments were given, Moses writes them on two tablets of stone. Now we often think, oh, well, five on one, five on the other. It wasn't quite like that, actually. Moses wrote on both sides of the tablets. And if you take the Hebrew wording and you try and split it equally, five and five down the middle, you end up with lots of Hebrew words on one tablet and just a few on the other. Because of the Hebrew wording, it doesn't fit nicely and equally. And, and so actually, um, scholars believe that what Moses actually did was write all of the commands, the whole covenant, on both tablets, on both. Because in ancient times, these two kings would do that. And then one would take his copy of it to the temple of his God and place it at the foot of, the, of, of, uh, of his God in his temple. And the other would take his copy back to his nation and place it at the foot of his God in his temple. And it served to both nations as a reminder to their gods and to them that they had this connection, this commitment, this agreement, this covenant with these other nations. Now, fascinating, when Moses writes out these two commandments, uh, these, these commandments on these two stones. He takes them and puts both of them together in the Ark of the Covenant, in the Holy of Holies, in the place where God himself was to dwell. So it is before Yahweh, his, his God, our God, and before the people. These two tablets serve as a reminder to God and a reminder to us that this is our agreement with one another, that we're not going to be unfaithful to you, Lord, and you're going to call us your people. We're going to be yours, and we're going to live for you. And, and it's, this, it's, it's, actually, uh, it's actually a mark of love and faithfulness and commitment between God and his people. That is what these commandments are all about. Now, the name, the Ten Commandments, doesn't appear anywhere in Exodus chapter 20. If you want to find where the Bible refers to these lists of things, these lists of commandments as the Ten Commandments, you need to jump forward to Exodus 34 or into Numbers, uh, sorry, Deuteronomy 4 or Deuteronomy chapter 10. And if you look in those three places, you will find the Hebrew phrase, Aseret Ha-Devarim. Okay, and that phrase we translate into the English Bible as the Ten Commandments. So you, you see it there and you read it there. These are the Ten Commandments as Moses wrote them down. Slight issue is that the word devarim doesn't actually mean commandments. In Hebrew, the word mitzvah means commandments. And nowhere in the Bible is the word mitzvah used in relation to what we call the Ten Commandments. It just isn't there. 
just doesn't exist in relation to this. It does call them Aseret HaDevarim, something completely different, which in Hebrew literally translates as the ten words. The ten words. Yes, yeah, Steve. Uh, Exodus 34, Deuteronomy 4, and Deuteronomy 10. That's where you'll find this. Aseret HaDevarim. And that literally means the ten words, not the Ten Commandments. Now, where in the Bible has God spoken ten times before? In creation. In creation. If you go back to Genesis and you walk through, and God said, and God said, and God said, there are ten words or ten word phrases, literally is what that means. There are ten speeches of God that you, you find in Genesis. And here we have again the ten words of God. Now what do we know about words that come from God's mouth? They give life. They bring order and beauty out of chaos. They are life-giving, hope-giving. They are incredible, incredible things. Uh, so we know when we look at the Hebrew that what we call the Ten Commandments, they're not supposed to be oppressive, life-draining things. They're not supposed to be things that we struggle to keep. They're actually supposed to be words from the mouth of God himself that give life and bring order and beauty out of chaos. That is what this is all about. And the Bible is telling us what we know, that God is a good God. He is a loving God. He is a faithful God. He does not abandon his people, but wants life for his people. He doesn't take them from one form of slavery to put them in another form of slavery. No, he set them free. He set them free. Uh, these words were freedom for the Israelites from the ancient Egyptian models of worship and the ancient Canaanite models of worship. And they're models of worship that demanded your whole life. They demanded sacrifice of other people, of your children. They demanded sexual acts that were inappropriate and not healthy for relationship. They, they, they demanded all types of abuse. These ancient Egyptian and Canaanite acts of worship were horrific. And God sets them free and says, don't put any gods before me. Don't, don't go back to that way of living. Don't make images and bow down to them like you have done or like the people in the land that you're moving to do. Don't do that. Be free. That's what these commands are all about. And we can miss that sometimes. We can miss that. They were actually about restoring the image of God back into the people of God. You see, they had been captive in Egypt and made to do things a certain way. And, and, and what do we say uh, the word in, in the ancient Hebrew for sin is? It's hatah. And what did we talk about? That means literally to miss the mark of being human, to miss the mark of being an image bearer of the image of God. And that's what was happening, all kinds of things. And God brings them out and gives them this law so that they don't miss the mark of being human anymore, so that they're free to be fully alive, fully bearing the image of the God who gives life and hope, joy, peace, freedom. That's what this is about. So if you've read it in any other way, like I have many times, we've been reading it wrong. We've been reading it wrong. Because these 10 words 
are supposed to be life-giving. We know that that's who God is. And suddenly this fits with his character and what we see in Jesus and what we see in Genesis and what we see at the end of Revelation. That is what this is all about. So knowing that that is about that, how is it that we so often end up reading it wrong? And I want to say this because we start in the wrong place. Open your Bible back to Exodus 20. Have a quick look. What would we say the first command is? The first imperative, the first you do thing. What is the command? Number one of the Ten Commandments. Yeah, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. Here's the thing. If we stop thinking of them as commands and we start to accept the actual Hebrew phrase, the ten words, and we step back into the culture of the people who wrote this and who it was written to, we start to understand something different. You see, you shall have no other gods before me is not the first word. It's not the first word. How does this start? And God said, I am the Lord your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of slavery. Word one, I am the Lord your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of slavery. And God said, let there be light. And he separated light from darkness. He separated light from darkness. He brought them out of captivity, out of the bondage of slavery, into freedom and hope. Now, that is a totally different place to start. If, if you were an ancient Hebrew, uh, uh, ancient Israelite in the Hebrew culture, that would be the first word. The second word for them is then verses three to six. So all of those imperatives that say, you shall have no other gods before me, you shall not make any images, you shall not bow down and worship them, they're all about not having anything else before God. Not having anything. So the ancient Hebrews, they view that as word two. Okay, and then word three carries on with the others. If you ask an ancient Hebrew, they'll actually tell you there are 13 commands, 13 imperatives in the 10 words. And if you look at all the you shall not, you shall not, you shall not, we actually group a few of them together and call them just one command as well. So they would say there's actually 13 imperatives, 13 commands within these 10 words, these 10 speeches of God that bring hope and life. But when we start there, that's a different place, right? That's a whole different perspective. When we start with, he's the Lord our God who sets us free and brings us out of the land of slavery. That's very different to starting with, you shall not. That's a different way of looking at it. It's a whole different thing. It's freeing. Suddenly we start with him and who he is and what he has done, not with us and what we need to try and live up to, which we always fail to do. <laughs> we start with him. The one who is and was and is and is to come. The one who is the same yesterday, today and forever. Who does not change, who will not change. We start with him and it's different. You see, there's a redemptive context to, to these words. They're given to a people who are already set free. They're not given to people and say, right, if you do this, then I'll set you free. They're not given in a way that says, if you can keep all of these, then I'll love you and call you my own. It doesn't work like that. Word one, I am the Lord, your God. 
I am your God, and I have set you free, and I have brought you out of the land. This is who you are now, who we are now, and now choose to live like this. Live differently. I love um, this acronym for the word law, because I think we think of law in the biblical term, and we get really kind of legalistic and all that kind of thing about it. But I like to say that law means this, love at work. That's what law means. It means love at work. This is the outworking of the love of God. He loves him so much. He loves us so much that he's like, now live like this. I've called you into this. Now live differently. Now live differently. It's not about the things we do to be saved. It's about what he has already done to save us and set us free. Galatians 5.18 tells us that we're not under the law. We're not under a legal uh, obligation. That This is not something that you're required to do. It's a requited response. It's the overflow of love. It's choosing to say, I'm going to obey you because I recognize word one. This is who you are. It's about you and who you are and what you have done, not about me and what I'm trying to do and failing dismally at. That's not about that. It's about you. And so I choose now to live differently because I trust that you are who you say you are and you've done what you say you've done, which means you'll do what you say you'll do. I trust it. I trust it. Even when the world tells me this is a ridiculous way to live, a ridiculous way to live, actually, you might think that and it might grain, like grind against culture. But if you trust what he said, then surely what he says it's got to still be good, right? It's got to, even when everyone tells you it's stupid and doesn't look right. It's a different way to be. And that comes back, doesn't it, to, to Romans 12 that we touched down on last week. Do you remember? Uh, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, in view of all that he has done, in view of all who he is, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your good and pleasing acts of worship. Be transformed by the renewing of your minds, not conformed to the pattern of this world. Be transformed, be set free, be liberated into something new, something different. In view of who he is and what he's done, now choose to live differently. Choose not the ancient Egyptian and Canaanite way, but to be transformed into something totally, totally life-giving. We do this because of all that he's done. And because we hang on to the hope of the promise of the fullness of life that he says we will have. You know, for us, we we don't maybe read the words, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. But Jesus, Jesus' words, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. And anyone, anyone who believes in me will live. Anyone who believes in me will live. Do you trust that? Do you trust that Jesus died and rose again and conquered death? He did it. Therefore, all that he says is true. All that he calls us to is a worthy cause. All that he says to try and live like is worth living like, is worth taking up our cross and laying down the things that we want because his way is better. His way is more full of hope and life and joy and faithfulness. That is true because of what he has done. In view of what he's done, choose to live differently. Choose to live differently. Uh, How do we do that? 
How do we do that? The Bible says that we should walk in step with the Spirit. We call him the Holy Spirit. We sometimes call him the Comforter. We sometimes call him the, uh, the Spirit of Peace. The Bible also calls him the Spirit of Jesus. We choose the Jesus way. We choose to walk in step with his Spirit. If you will, turn with me uh, to Galatians chapter 5. This is the gospel, guys. This is the good news of Jesus. He has done something amazing and invites us into something equally amazing. He's done something amazing and invites us to live a different way. I heard recently someone say to me uh, that, um, oh, well, it's not a gospel of words, but a gospel of deeds. It's a gospel of good deeds. And um, there's some truth to that. But that's not what the Bible says, actually. <laughs> it's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that it is a gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the gospel of what he has done. He has done it. I am the Lord your God who bought you out of slavery. Not, I am God, now you go do. <laughs> I am the Lord your God who set you free and invites you into a new way of living. It's not the gospel of, hey, uh, the gospel of Matt Caddick, look at all his great deeds, or the gospel of Counterslip Baptist Church, look at all the amazing things they do. No, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the people of God just point to him and what he has done, because it's all about that. It's all about that, and that is what leads us in and spurs us on and fills us to live differently, a life of hope. That is what it does. Um, now, Galatians chapter 5, we're going to read from verse 13 together, okay? You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. You get that? You, my brothers and sisters, were. You have been. It has happened. You were called to be free. You have been set free in Jesus. Already done. You don't need to strive for it. You don't need to work for it. He has done it. Okay? It's not a keep these things and you might be. He did it. Done. End of story. You just need to live in it now. Okay? You have been called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. You've got your freedom. What are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with it? Are you going to choose to go back to the ways of Egypt or to indulge in the land of the, of the Canaanites and all their worship and the things that they do? Or are you going to choose a different way? Are you going to choose the way of the world or are you going to choose the way that Yahweh, the way that Jesus sets out before us and says, do you trust me? I have set you free and believe me when I tell you this is the good way to live. Are you going to do that? For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Why? Because your neighbor is an image bearer. Because your neighbor bears the image of God. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. 
You're not under it. Do you notice as well, um, with the commandments, we often look at it and we're like, it feels like we're under it, right? It feels like we read it and we're trapped under it and we have to do everything that it says, cross every T, dot every I, and we have to keep it. But we're not under the law. You see, no one was ever invited to be under the law. They were invited to partner with the law, with God's love at work. They were invited to partner with it, to walk in step with it. Not to be, cra- um, to be trapped under it. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissension, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. We touched on this a couple of weeks ago. We said, if if we live like this, I mean, some of these things were like, we would never do that. We're not going to engage in a sexual orgy. But I mean, some of these things are easy for us. Selfish ambition. I want my way. I want my way and I'm not going to stop until I get it. Uh, You know, dissension, factions. Okay, well, we're going to break off and be this little group over here. We're going to do it this way. We're going to moan about that. These things, we're all capable of these things. But when we engage in them, when we engage in them, we actually shut ourselves off from all that God wants to do in our lives. They're not things of the kingdom. They're the ways of Egypt and Canaan. They're not the ways of Yahweh. But... The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Israel had a choice. The way of Egypt or the way of Yahweh. We have a choice. The way of the world, what the Bible calls the flesh, or the way of the spirit. How do we do that? That sounds so simple to say, doesn't it? But how do we do that? How do we keep in step with the spirit? Uh, Two things I want to quickly say on this. One, you notice how Jesus says that he's the resurrection and the life, and if you believe in him, then anyone who believes in him will live. He doesn't say this. I am the resurrection and the life, and whoever believes in me will be zapped with life. You notice that? I think we read it like that sometimes. Sometimes we read it and go, I believe in Jesus, and he's going to zap me with his life now, and everything will be okay. We do, but he doesn't say that. He says, I am the resurrection and the life, and whoever believes in me will live. They will do something. Life. I am the resurrection of life. Do you believe in me? Word one, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Do you believe in me? Then live. Don't murder. Don't put other gods before me. Love one another. Like, like, that's what Jesus is saying. I am the resurrection of life. Whoever believes in me will choose the Jesus way. They'll choose my way. It won't just happen to you. You know, it's, it's a habit. It's a culture that we need to cultivate within ourselves and within our community. It won't just change overnight. And part of what we want to look at when we do the, uh, the discipleship course in April is that very thing. How do we cultivate ways that invite the spirit of Jesus into us, that help us to walk in step with his spirit and choose the Jesus way, choose to live, not die?
How do we do that? And that's part of what we're going to look at then. So th that, was, that was point, point one of those little two points was, was that life doesn't just get zaps upon you. Actually, you will live. If you believe in him, you'll choose his way. You'll choose his way because you trust him and it's different and you believe it's good. You will live. But point two is this. It says that we walk in step with the spirit. Well, how, do we, how do we do that? What is that? The Bible says that the sword of the spirit is the word of God. The sword of the spirit is the word of God. The sword is the, what you attack with, you make way to move forward with. It's also the thing you defend yourself with. How many of us attack and defend with everything else but the word of God? We, we do. We throw all kinds of things out there. And we're going to come back to that in just a second. But the sword of the spirit is the word of God. And God's words, his aseret hadevarim, his words are life. They are life and they are hope and they are a different way to live. And you're invited into that. You're invited into that. You have a copy of it in your hand or on your phone. We have it. You're invited into it. These words give life. Choose these words. Even in our modern context where this stuff feels a bit weird. Hey, choose these words. Choose to trust him. Choose. Do you believe he is the one who calls you out of the land of slavery, out of the land of the dead, into life? Yes. Has he died and risen again for us? Yes. Then choose to live his way. Because if he was good for that, he's good for everything else that he says as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. I want to land with this. Who is in the driving seat of your life? Who is in the driving seat of your life? You remember the video we watched at the start? Who's at the command center? Who's at the controls in the command center? Is it your head? Is it your heart, your feelings? Is it your body? Or is it the spirit of Jesus? Is it the spirit of Jesus? Who sits on the throne in your life? See, if I respond to something and I choose to respond to it with my head, which quite often I do, I think I've talked about Myers-Briggs before, I'm an ENFJ, okay, and J means I like logic and structure, and so I quite often want to respond with my thoughts. Um, but if I let my thoughts control every reaction to everything, sometimes that will work out, but sometimes that won't. You see, if someone does something to me and then I'm like, right, logically, well, they, well then they did that, so therefore they deserve this. And I'm going to do this now. And I'm going to choose to do this or turn my back on them or walk this way or do that thing. That, that's how my head can play stuff out sometimes. If I let my feelings play out, well, they could be anywhere. <laughs> I mean, anyone feel stable consistently in their feelings? I mean, my feelings are like all over the place sometimes. Like, but, but genuinely, like our feelings, they, they just respond in different ways, don't they? Something happens and you're like, wow, I'll give you a hug. I love that. And then something else happens. You're like, I'm going <laughs> to. Like, you just, your feelings can be one thing one minute and one thing the next. They're fleeting. Do you trust your feelings? I don't. I don't trust mine. Like, I go with them quite a lot, but I don't always trust them. They're not solid. They change from one moment to the next. Someone tells me something, and it makes me feel something, and then two minutes later, someone tells me a slightly different version of it, and my feelings have changed towards the situation. They change. Do I let my feelings drive who I am? What about my body? My body, we can so often put our bodies in the driving seat. When we are like full of energy and, and we're just like, boom, let's go. Let's do this and this and this and this and this. But then when our bodies are tired and something happens, oh, I can't be bothered today. 
not going to do that. Not going to call that person. Not going to read my Bible. I'm tired. I'm really feeling that today. And, and our bodies can dictate how we are. Or we can let the spirit of Jesus take the driving seat of our lives. We can let the spirit of Jesus, the one who says, I am the way and the truth and the life. The same yesterday, today and forever. He is not changing. He is not changing. Nothing about him is ever going to change. He is consistent and he is good. He is good and his love endures forever. He is faithful in every situation and circumstance. He's not going to change. I tell you what, he is a good person to put in the driving seat of your life. He is a good person to put in the driving seat of your life. To give over control. To say, ah, oh, do you know, I really know that this is how I feel right now. But the word of God, which is the sword of the spirit, tells me that that is not how I walk in step with Jesus. And so even though I feel this, even though I think this, I'm going to choose this way, his way. Because when we start with him, it is so different. It is so different. I'll leave you with this. Where are you starting? Where are you starting? When you start with yourself, that's when it becomes legalistic. That's when it becomes hard work. That's when life becomes something you have to get right. That's when we view Jesus completely the wrong way and we think the Old Testament and New Testament gods are different. <laughs> That's when that happens, when we start with us and our perception and our feeling and our thought about how everything works. But when we start with him, completely different story, completely different story. When we start with him, we realize that we're already free. I mean, Paul sat in prison and talked about how free he was. If he was to start with himself and he was sat in prison, he wouldn't be talking about how free he was, but how bound up and how cold he was and how deprived of good food he was and good company he was. And he'd have a whole load of things to moan and whinge about. But when he starts with Jesus, you don't get that story from Paul. You get a story that says, I am free. I am free. And I hope to be with you one day soon. And if not, I'll die and be with Christ, which is way better. I mean, like, to sit in prison and say that, because he starts with Jesus. Are you starting with Jesus? Guys, I promise you, it's the best way to start. He is the best person to let be in the driving seat of your life. And, and I haven't nailed that. I haven't nailed that. I'm on a journey with that too. And daily, I have to surrender my own throne to him. And daily, I have to take up my cross. But daily, I do that because I trust that he is good. I trust that he died and rose for me. I trust that when he says, Matt, you are free, I am free. And that there is a better way to live. Amen? Nathan's going to come and lead us. Um, why don't we stand together?